Amen. Amen. The best way to take care of the future is the Lord of today, each day. We have to remind ourselves of that. Turn with me to First Peter this morning, uh, chapter chapter two. We're in the section of verses thirteen through seventeen, and we'll be hanging out around uh, verses fourteen and uh, fourteen through sixteen this morning. Having been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light causes us to appear very different to an unbelieving world. And one of those areas that stands out is that Christians respect authority. Okay? I grew up in a generation of question everything, toss off all authority. <laughs> That's how we grew up. That was the thinking. That was, uh, you don't respect authority. To be under authority is to be belittled and to be something less. And you need to cast off all norms. You need to question all authority and so forth. And uh, somehow that kind of still remains, except for the totalitarians that have gotten into uh, (laughs) office they think uh, we ought all all to submit. I I just see some humorous things that I don't have time to show you the humor uh, about these matters. But we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, and we are different compared to an unbelieving world. And one of the things that makes us so different is how we interact with authority. Peter and Paul are both concerned that Christians do not give needless occasions for unbelievers to slander believers. First Peter 2.12, we saw Peter's concern, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that is, among the unbelievers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The Apostle is very concerned as to how the world views us and our behavior. Paul expresses similar concern in Romans chapter 12 when he writes, Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And it's amazing how much peace can be made by submitting to authority. Not sinning, but how much peace can be made when people submit to authority. All kinds of peace. That's right. And they're both concerned about how we as Christians appear and not to give needless cause for the world to slander us. And we need to be very careful that the world slanders us because we worship Christ, because we obey God rather than men. Okay, we need to be very careful. And Peter's going to call us to honor the king here next week, Lord willing. So in this whole matter of God-constituted authority, we are different And we need to appear different and not give occasion 
for the world to slander us. Let them slander us over the real issues, <laughs> over who Jesus is, and so forth. So they're both concerned. Peter and Paul are concerned about that. Peter's also concerned that we have a believable, believable Christian witness to unbelievers by your good works which they observe. We're on display. They observe us. Are they observing good works? That's what makes our verbal witness believable. Certain good works and submission to authority is one of them, which is recognizable by unbelievers. In order for our Christian witness to be believable, unbelievers must observe behavior consistent with our witness. In 1 Peter 2.13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And here Peter motivates us by reminding us that we are submitting to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That's a whole new dimension. These ordinances of man are established by God and He calls us to submit to them. It is because Christ, not Caesar, is Lord that one submits. Right? It is because Christ, not Caesar, is Lord that we submit. For the believer, this provides a revolutionary view of being under human authority. And this even goes so far into those realms when we're unequally yoked. As Nathaniel prayed, and as Peter's going to address that, believing woman married to unbelieving spouse, we're submitting to Christ. It's a revolutionary view of interacting with human authority that we as Christians have. It's possible that some Christians may have thought that they were not required to submit to non-Christians, to unbelievers. But notice the specific references in the whole context of this passage. To unbelieving husbands, to unreasonable masters, and to unbelieving Gentile rulers. <laughs> All three of those categories, they're non-Christians, they're unbelievers. And Peter and Paul want to be very clear that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean there isn't God-constituted authority over you through non-believers. Charles Darrell summarizes Peter's emphasis this way, quote, Doing good is the basis for Christian credibility. I like that. <laughs> Doing good is the basis for Christian credibility. Do we want to have credibility when we talk about the gospel, when we preach the gospel, when a church stands up for the gospel? Does that church want to have credibility? The foundation of that credibility then is doing good and living under God's authority in a credible way. 
Doing good is the basis for Christian credibility since it is a standard acknowledged even by unbelievers themselves. And we've talked about that time. You know, in the workplace, when you confess your faith, the unbelievers expect you to behave better than they. <laughs> they do. They, they hold you to a higher standard. You know, they might be cheating on their wives, but if you're confessed as a Christian, they expect you not to cheat on your wives. They know that by natural conscience, and they expect that. Whatever natural conscience they have left that they're still trying to suppress, they expect you to be demonstrating that. That's right. They can recognize that. Unbelievers can recognize hypocrisy in professed Christians and churches. So, we have strong exhortations here about how to be credible. And Peter is concerned about that. So we're resuming today with the latter part of verse 14 and focusing on verses 15 through 16. We are to submit to governors who are sent by the king. Peter's description of the ruling authorities is quite positive. The governors are those are those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Well, that's a good thing. And for the praise of those who do good. Now, this positive view of Roman authority, which both Peter and Paul have, raises many questions which are beyond the scope of this morning. And again, if you refer to our series on Wednesday night, we, we grappled through all those questions. How can Peter and Paul be so positive about these expressions of authority? Uh, how do we work through all that? And, and we attempted to do that on Wednesday night, but here we have this positive expression of the civil authority to punish evildoers and to uh, reward and do praise for those who do good. Certainly that's the standard and the goal. The civil authorities do have their authority from God. And therefore, they are responsible. Delegated authority means responsibility. And so whatever sphere of authority you may have, that authority is given to you by God, and that makes you responsible, whether that is a civil authority, a church authority in your home, in your workplace. Delegated authority makes you responsible to God. Okay? And... uh So our civil leaders are, of course, accountable to God for the authority they have been given. So the civil authorities do have authority from God, and they are therefore responsible to punish evildoers and to praise those who do good. And when they're at their best, they do that. Now, evildoers... We have to stay in the historic context, though. Evildoers would be those in the opinion of the emperor who are bringing evil into the empire. It is the emperor who sends the governors to do these things. And how we understand evil in the text is a significant thing to work through, and we're not going to do that in detail here this morning. But he sends his governors to punish uh, those that are bringing evil, somewhat by his definition, into the empire. Paul's exhortation to pray for kings and those in authority in 1 Timothy 2 gives us some insight 
on what good and evil mean in this context. He says this, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all those who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Kings in this passage is in the plural, which may refer not only to the emperor, but kings in the local Roman provinces. Like we read in Luke one five. there was in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So Judea is a Roman province. Herod is the king in Judea. So we have kings plural. Uh, we're not just referring here to the emperor. We're referring to the authority in Romans in Roman provinces. And so what are, what are we to pray for? We're to ask God's power and grace for the king and all those who, kings and those who are in authority that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, this is not, you know, leave it to beavers America. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when this expression that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life Contextually, what, what likely is to be requested is a social and economic stability free from chaos, anarchy, persecutions, war, civil war, genocide, all of which result in people requiring extreme measures for daily survival. Indeed, conditions when many people do not survive. We want to lead a peaceable and quiet life, not in the middle of civil war or wars or genocide or persecutions or anarchy and an endless, you know, endless nations traveling north and south across Judea as they did during the intertestamental period and all of the suffering and the chaos because of leaders that don't fear God. And so it probably that it's down those lines. The term life used here by Paul in the Greek is bios, where we get biology from. The physical life which enables us really to live, pursuing the higher aspects of living, that we might lead a peaceable life that the basic physical peace and necessity and stability would be present and we could pursue a lot of other things. Now, we've been blessed in this country, of course, for quite some time with that type of life, hasn't we? God's answered that prayer for quite some time in our nation. So that's kind of abnormal. That's an abnormal Christian experience according to the Bible. <laughs> so, the civil authority is also sent for the praise of those who do good. And this is interesting historically because early Christians never expected to be praised or commended by pagans. You know, they got over that hang-up 
right before they even got started, okay? They knew Jesus. They knew Christ's life well enough. They didn't, they didn't decide to be baptized in Christ's name and confess their faith with any false ideas that they are going to receive the praise of those around them. And so they were never expected to be praised or commended by pagans. And thus, they were free from the world's criticisms. That freedom was a great strength for them as Christians. And it was a protection from compromise. They were free from the jeers and the mockings and so forth of the pagans. They weren't expecting the pagans to praise and call them good, which gave them a tremendous freedom. Very powerful thing. You can read about it if you read the history of those early centuries. Other than a stubbornness against honoring idols or emperor worship, or engaging in the lust of the flesh, those who actually observe believers would acknowledge their behavior is good. Loving one's neighbor as yourself, returning good for evil, caring for the poor that aren't biologically related to you. That just blew the ancients away. One of the apologists said this, their leader has put it into their heads that they are all brothers. <laughs> Isn't that glorious? Their leader has put it into their heads that they are all brothers. And so they don't just care for their biological family. They observe that. So... Caring for the poor and the widows and the orphans and, and under one of those persecutions, I, I forget the names, but the, the church leader takes the, the Roman prefect and he takes the Roman prefect down to this special building or this special place and it's filled up with widows and lame and blind. And the bishop says, these are some of our most precious treasures. You know, and the Gentile Oh, you know, he's hanging there, you know, with his mouth open. They don't see anything like that. Those are people we're not interested in anymore. You know, I wish we had a government would just, you know, euthanize them. You know, they're too much of a burden. Christians value all human life, don't we? That's right. See, it's different. They observe your good behavior. Yes, Christians certainly could become objects of praise as those who do good. And if the civic ruler had some sense, <laughs> the civic ruler would see and acknowledge that. And once the church, uh, once the church became accustomed to the approval of the world, she became very weak. And many have compromised while desiring the culture's approval. See, and that's what's happened to us as America. For the longest time, 
the church has become accustomed to at least, you know, the world may not join them, but the world at least, you know, would approve them. And nobody would graffiti the church or do all the kinds of things that have been done to our building and so forth. There was a time when the world would acknowledge and somewhat praise the church. And that's good and dangerous. It's dangerous because when the church becomes accustomed to the praise of the unbelievers, and then the unbelievers go further and further into darkness, then we have to wean ourselves off of the approval of the world. And that's the problem facing religion in America today. Many religious institutions have been unable and unwilling to wean themselves off of the praise from the world, and they have compromised greatly because they won't wean themselves off of the praise of the world. May that not happen to us. So... Peter continues in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That should catch our attention, for this is the will of God. Wow. And doing good includes how we respond to the civil authorities. There is a purpose for doing good that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Doing good is a powerful apologetic, a defense of the faith we profess. Doing good silences those who would slander us as evildoers. Other than calling Christians evil on the account of their refusal to worship Roman gods or the emperor, Christians must be misrepresented in order to be spoken evil of. And that happened in the early church. They said, well, they have all things in common. They share wives and they drink the blood of infant sacrifices at their... They had to be slandered with false rumors. That's exactly what happened in the first century and has become the case today. The only difference is the few things we are called evil for have changed. They can't call us evil for cheating on our wives or not caring for our widows or not loving our neighbor as ourselves or sacrificing ourselves for others and all those kind of things. They can't call us evil for that. They've singled out a few other things, of course. Then the refusal to honor the gods and deify the emperor, they, they were called evil for that. Now it's a refusal to redefine marriage and gender, isn't it? We, we submit to God. God gets to write the dictionary. Hey, a dictionary contains definitions. <laughs> and so we cannot go with definitions that don't line up with the mind of God expressed in the Word of God. Now, unbelievers don't believe the mind of God is expressed in the Word of God. And we'll live and die on that hill. We believe God is gracious. He hasn't left us in the dark. 
God has engaged us. He's not turned his back toward humanity. God has come to humanity face to face in Jesus Christ to talk with us, to speak to us. And he's proven that graciousness on the cross. So no, we can't go with someone else's definition of these things. Not if the gospel is true and that the God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is the true God. We cannot go with man's wisdom and definitions. We just can't do it. And we mean people no harm. We wish them no harm. So the few things have changed that we will be spoken evil of, but the principle haven't. The principles haven't. And perhaps insisting that Christ is the only way to escape God's judgment. In regard to silencing the ignorant and foolish men, Peter Davids writes, In their rebellion against God, they are ignorant of his ways and thus perceive the behavior of Christians in a warped manner. That's true. But the blameless behavior of Christians will indeed put them to silence, if not in the present age, although it might should they become reflective, in the day of visitation they will be put to silence. And I should mention that for this apologetic to work, this is the apologetic. Follow the will of God doing good. You will silence foolish and ignorant. For this apologetic to work in the present age, the church must exercise discipline and excommunication. So the world knows there is a difference between the church and the world. Those who cheat on their wives in the church and don't repent get excommunicated from it for their own benefit because there's a difference between the church and the world. And discipline is one of those tools to maintain that observable difference. But when people are allowed to continue in the visible church who are either morally or doctrinally apostate, the effectiveness of that by doing good you may be put to silence, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, it goes to zero. When the church is pretty much like the world. You know, the world has their social gatherings where they love on one another. And people like that. The world does all those nice kind of horizontal things with one another. They do all that kind of thing. But they'll never tell you in one of those meetings that Jesus is the only way. And that the wrath of God abides upon those who are unbelieving and God help you before it's too late. We won't preach those doctrines. 
No, no, no. You might turn them away. And when you begin to forsake those doctrines, we call that apostasy, don't we? And the church should respond with excommunication to bring those people back to repentance and perhaps salvation before it's too late. Love them enough to confront them. Love your neighbor enough to express to them that you believe they're lost. So unless the church upholds those key things, it completely zeroes the apologetic of what this passage is talking about. Continuing on in verse 16, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants to God. Now, this is an attitude qualifier of how we are to go about doing what Peter's exhorted us. It points back to verse 13. There's no verb in verse 16. We are to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake as free people, not using your liberty for vice, but as slaves to God. You see, he's, he's given us now the attitude that we should have for verses 13, 14, and 15. We're going to submit. We do good works. And we do this submission and good works. We do it as free men. We are submitting to these authorities as free men, but we are not to use our freedom as an excuse for vice. Rather, as free men, we are always slaves of God. Now, wow, we need to unpack this a bit. I mean, this captures the attitude, the thinking of a believer. Verse 16 is describing the Christian's attitude and perspective. How different it is from the world. Christians must think differently about freedom and authority. Very differently. As free. That describes a state or condition that is real. Christians are free. The mind and conscience of the Christian are emancipated from human authority. Let me say that first. We are free. We are emancipated from human authority. It was Jesus who instructed us to call no man master. Right? Call no man master. Whether it's the slave or whether it's the emperor. Call no man master. However, we are to be slaves to God. As we'll see in a moment. Now, I'm not an anarchist. Okay? Maybe someone can take this clip and use it against us and take it out of context. Let's go on. The reality of as free is a huge reality that we need to understand. 
A Christian renounces all human authority as the final authority. That's the difference. The Christian renounces all human authority as the final authority. A Christian does not allow any independent, autonomous human authority in this world that belongs to God. All such claims are false. Why? Because of what Paul writes in Romans 13. There is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. There. That's final authority. And in this world, God has not turned his back on it or walked out. It still belongs to him. And he is the only autonomous, final authority. (laughs) And a Christian will not compromise that truth. It's not the emperor. Not the Supreme Court. It's not the Stalinist dictator. No. No, it's not. To insist on man as the final authority is an act of intellectual rebellion against God. Of deep, deep rebellion in the mind and attitude about authority. It's Genesis 3. Pilate made such an arrogant claim while trying Jesus. And it was one of the few times that Jesus spoke. In response to Jesus' silence, Peter said, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? See? I am the final authority. Don't you get that, Jesus? How did he respond? You could have no authority at all against me unless it had been given you from above. So, though the Christian renounces all human authority as final authority, and that, of course, is what cannot be tolerated in a communist state. You see, that's what cannot be tolerated in statism. That there's any authority higher than the state. That's an evil idea. The rebellion, rebellious idea. Though the Christian renounces all human authority as final authority, yet the Christian willingly submits to all God-constituted authority because God has instituted it. So, consider the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. 
A status may obey the state as an idolater. The Christian obeys the state as an act of obedience to God. It's revolutionary. It's completely different. And though the Christian may obey the state better than the statist, the statist will still hate and despise the Christian. Why? It's a matter of devotion and worship. We will not worship the emperor. (laughs) We will not be devoted to the emperor as our savior either of ourselves or the empire. That makes those who have their trust and worship in the emperor very angry. (laughs) Correct? We won't worship them. So even though the Christian may obey better than the status, the status will still hate, despise the believer. Because it's a matter of devotion and worship. Who receives the allegiance of the human heart? Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. The final allegiance of the human heart is only goes to God. God is the only one who has the right to receive that final allegiance of a human being. And those who are trying to usurp that, Christians aren't going to bow to that. It's to make something or someone else equal with God. And, And we just cannot do that. We'll obey your unreason- we'll even obey your unreasonable laws if they're not commanding us to sin. If you want to tax us double, go ahead, we'll pay it. It's not a sin to pay double your taxes. We'll submit because our God has called us to submit. And we'll be the best of citizens will be the best of citizens, even when you treat us unreasonably. But we will not confess you as the final authority over us. That we can never do. Because Jesus, the Son of God, sent into our world, is Lord. And you, emperor, if you had your wits about you, you would follow that Roman policy that gave the different conquered peoples their religious freedom. And and Rome did that for quite a while (laughs) in the centuries prior to Christ's coming. They gave that religious liberty to the different provinces. And the the Jews were blessed quite a bit. So there's a difference between the believer and unbeliever Peter adds, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice. He is anticipating an objection now. Don't use your liberty as a cloak for vice. Here's what he's anticipating. Well, Christ has made us free men. 
Christ is Lord is not submission to every ordinance of man a contradiction of our freedom in Christ. This matter surfaces multiple places in the New Testament. Freedom in Christ was already being used as a cover for practicing evil. It sounds something like this. Jesus is Lord of Lords. Jesus is my Lord. I receive no commands but those that come from Him. I am free of all men. And Peter says, no. Paul says, no. No. Interestingly, this is similar to the Jewish theocratic way of thinking, which is no longer valid. The church is not a theocracy. But that kind of thinking is theocracy spilled over into the New Testament. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Of course not! (laughs) That's a theocratic idea. (laughs) Those Gentiles are supposed to be paying taxes to us, just like during Solomon's reign. That's theocratic thinking. Okay? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Of course not. But the Jesus who made us free from all men. Call no man master. The Jesus who made us free from all men is the same Jesus who said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So, Peter completes his thought here now as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. This is not a contradiction with as free. Obviously, being free is not the definition that our culture uses for being free. Obviously, obviously not. Peter Davids explains this well, quote, Against this misuse of liberty, Peter asserts the truth known from the Old Testament that freedom is not a release from bondage to a state of autonomy, but a release from bondage to become a slave of God. That's freedom. Only in God's joyful slavery is there true freedom. Amen? Romans 6.22 But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Okay? Now, the world doesn't understand all this. And that's why they misrepresent us. But we need to understand it all and seek to live consistently with these exhortations by God's help. We really are to serve God in all that we do as bond slaves, as bond servants to God. We must think daily about being a slave to God. He's the best of all masters. The best of all masters. Every hard thought you and I have had regarding him is false. Every hard thought you and I have had regarding the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of those is false. 
And it's the devil that fills people's heads with that blasphemous stuff, just like in the garden. Has God said, that unreasonable ogre, that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? How unreasonable for God to even withhold one tree from you. How unreasonable His authority is. He has done that times without number to human beings. Okay. Every hard thought you and I have had about this God is a lie. And that cross and His Son upon it prove such as to the kind of God we're talking about here this morning. Okay? That's right. A joyful slavery. Unfortunately, the life of many is the exact opposite of what Peter describes in verse 16. They are not free from men at all. Instead, they have chosen their master, and it is man either individually or man collectively as their final authority. Do you realize that? Rather than choosing this God revealed in Jesus Christ as their final authority, they've chosen man. Corrupted, fallen man is the authority they choose. Darkened, sinful, sin-enslaved. Man. Whether that's yourself. (laughs) Making yourself the final authority. Or someone else. Or the state. (laughs) They have chosen man. And they're not free at all not as a human being created in the image of God. That's the condition of humanity without the grace of God. Many have chosen the exact opposite. They've chosen their master and it is man in one form or another. They're lost. That's sad. That's grievous. That's just grievous. Serving the wrong master. Serving a master who wouldn't give a little finger for you. As opposed to serving the master that gave his son for you. So... I just end by saying two things. First, I urge you to consider carefully the master you've chosen. 
Nobody's free. (laughs) Nobody's free in that autonomous sense. Nobody is. So I just urge you to consider the master you've chosen. And Christians, we must cultivate the mindset that's in these verses. We must think these things through. As free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants to God. And as bondservants to God, he calls us to respect all the authorities that he has instituted. Okay, let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, wow, you are, you are a God to be praised, a God to be trusted, Lord, a God to be worshipped, a God to rejoice over as our portion. Lord, you have said that you are our God and that you will be our God and that we belong to you. Father, we, when we're in our right minds, we just think that's the most wonderful thing, Father, that we belong to you as your redeemed bondservants through the blood of your Son. Oh, Lord, teach us to be compassionate on those, your enemies. Oh, Lord, give us a soft heart of grief and sadness Help us shed some tears as Jesus did, as Paul did. Lord, have mercy on our friends and our loved ones that do not know you. And remind us, often help us to not forget who you are and protect us from the lies, the lies of the evil one that are at work in the minds of all unbelievers. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for transferring us from darkness, Lord, to light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.